You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So last Saturday, I, uh, I did a little yard sale in my yard uh, at home. And I just want to say, if you've, if you've already heard me talk about this, I just want to tell you I'm sorry. I, I, I have... Uh, I can't stop talking about this yard sale, um, and I know a lot of you have heard me kind of go on about it, and it's just because I, it's just because of how disappointing this whole thing was. Um, I, I, I did not know what I was getting into. I spent so so much time for so little return, and I, I've just been trying to make sense of it all. And I think I think it's I think it's I think this is the main thing. I think it's because. People go to yard sales, the people who go to yard sales, yard sellers, people, they're just looking for crazy deals, like crazy deals. And I mean, that's, it's like, it's a game, right? It's a whole game. It's about the deals. And, and you, some of you guys, I mean, some of you guys do yard sales. You guys know what I'm talking about. You've done some before. Just show of hands. Garage, garage sale, yard sale. Okay. You know what I'm talking about. Okay. It's all about the deals. Last Saturday, we had one, one gentleman who came by, and uh, he's looking around at our stuff, and, and uh, I sold this guy a, a long-sleeve Henley shirt made of waffle knit cotton and a coffee bean grinder for $1. That's like four quarters. And it was like a wooden coffee bean grinder with a stainless steel blade for $1. And, and what was fascinating about this is that as the gentleman was holding these things, he was reluctant to give me the dollar. I'm not, he had to like pry his fingers off of the dollar bill before he gave it to me. And I ended up feeling bad about the whole thing. Like, and that's when I knew that I had made a mistake. Like this whole, like I'm not, I am not cut out for this. Like I, 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 I thought that I was offering some deals out here in my yard, but apparently I can't do this. And that, that's partly because, I mean, just deals are tricky. You know, deals are tricky. And that's good to know because in our passage today, Jacob and Laban, they, they make a deal. And in the world of strange deals, this is, this is a very weird deal, as Gavin just read. And so I want to just do two things for the sermon today. First, I want to tell you the story of what's happening here with Jacob. Then after we look at the story, I want to, over here, just talk about some lessons that we learn. All right, there's just two parts to the sermon. First, uh, part one, we're going to see the story. Then part two, we're going to learn the lessons in the story. Let's pray. We'll get started. Father, the unfolding of your word gives light. You impart understanding to the simple, and as Dan said in his exhortation, we confess this morning, that's who we are. We, we are all in the dark unless you give us light. And so we ask this morning, please open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. Show us your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
So for part one, we're going to see the story. And there are really four parts to this story. There are four, four sections that are, are going on here. Let me just list them to you, and then we're going to walk through them. Number one is Jacob's house increases under Laban. Part two, or number two, Jacob flees from Laban. Three, Jacob has a showdown with Laban. And four, Jacob makes a covenant with Laban. And I want to just walk through these four parts, and I'm going to do this quickly. But overall, I want you to know that Jacob's experience in these two chapters is actually serving a greater purpose in the storyline of the Bible. And that's because what happens here with Jacob is actually a foreshadowing of the exodus that will come later in Israel's history. And the parallels between the two events, between what's going on here with Jacob and what goes on later in the book of Exodus, is fascinating how they line up. And I'm going to mention some of these parallels, but I want us just to track what's happening here first. So the first part is Jacob's house increases under Laban. This is how verse 25 starts. Jacob wants to go home. That's what we're told right away in verse 25. He wants to go home, but Laban wants him to stay around because he knows that Jacob's prosperity has benefited him. And Jacob knows the same thing. Jacob says to Laban in verse 30, the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. So Jacob gets it here. And that's why Laban, when Jacob says he wants to leave, Laban says, okay, look, name your wages. I'll pay you. I'll do whatever I need to do in order to get you to stay. And so Jacob here has some leverage. And so with this leverage, Jacob says, okay, I will keep pasturing your flock, but in return, give me every lamb that is black and every goat that is speckled or spotted, which seems like an arbitrary classification. Jacob, he just picks an appearance in the, in, in the livestock and he says, I'll take the part of the flock that look a certain way. And Laban agrees to this deal, but then Laban goes behind Jacob's back and he removes all the lambs and goats that look the way Jacob describes. So basically, according to their deal, Laban leaves Jacob with nothing. He is cheating Jacob here. But then in verse 37, Jacob he starts, he starts breeding the flock, and he does this trick, this, this thing with sticks, that three different kinds of sticks, that somehow uh, it, it makes the animals produce offspring that are speckled, spotted, and black, exactly what he asked for. And then the text says that Jacob maneuvers it in a certain way so that all the stronger flock end up belonging to him and all the feebler flock belong to, to Laban according to their deal. And as we're reading this in the text, we, we see no mention here that this is dirty. We just see in verse 43, this conclusion, thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys, which means that Jacob has continued to prosper under Laban despite Laban. This has nothing to do with Laban. Jacob has prospered despite him. All right. So now we're in part two of the story. Jacob flees Laban. This is all in chapter 31. It's not long before Jacob's sons and, and it's not long before Laban's sons and, and Laban himself 
begin to resent the prosperity of Jacob. They do not like the fact that Jacob has increased in wealth according to the deal. And so verse 2 says that Laban did not regard Jacob with favor as before. And this is something that we're going to see again. We're going to see this exact thing happen in the book of Exodus. When the people of Israel are in the land of Egypt, they're away from their home, they're in Egypt because of a famine, we see right away in Exodus that the people of Israel increased greatly and the Egyptians did not like that. And so Laban here in Genesis 31 is foreshadowing the Egyptians in the book of Exodus. And God, in verse 3, speaks to Jacob and he says, Okay, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. What God tells Moses, too, in Exodus. Go back to the land of Canaan. That's already what Jacob wanted to do back in verse 25 of chapter 30. And so Jacob, he sends for Rachel and Leah. Uh, he, he, he meets with them. He tells them his plan. He says, okay, look, we're getting out of here. We're leaving this place because God has said so. And so Rachel and Leah agree right away, and they get all of their stuff, and they leave in a hurry, like in Exodus, they're leaving in haste, and they don't, they don't tell Laban. Verse 20 says that, that Jacob tricked Laban by not telling him that they were headed out. And Laban finds out three days later. And in verse 23, we read that Laban, after he finds out that Jacob and his family have left for the land of Canaan, Laban assembles his kinsmen and he pursues Jacob. That's the exact same language used with Pharaoh in Exodus. Pharaoh takes his army and he pursues the people of Israel after they escaped from Egypt. That's what Laban is doing. He has basically formed his own army. And like Pharaoh did to Moses and the people of Israel, Laban is chasing down Jacob and his family. But in verse 24, God comes to Laban in a dream and he tells him not to say anything to Jacob. He says, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And then in verse 25, Laban catches up with Jacob. And this is the third part here. Jacob has a showdown with Laban. Laban right away is aggressive here. And it looks like Laban is not listening to what God told him because he says something to Jacob. God said, don't say anything. Laban instead interrogates Jacob on why he left in such a hurry. And then Laban gives him this subtle threat. Uh, Laban says to Jacob in verse 29, he's surrounded, remember, by his army, and he says to Jacob, it is in my power to do you harm. In other words, I could destroy you right now, Laban says, but your God came to me in a dream and told me to leave you alone. So Laban is saying to Jacob, surrounded by his army, he's saying, you better be glad your God bailed you out. He's flexing here on Jacob. And then he says, Jacob, look, okay, I understand, Laban's saying to Jacob, I understand you, you want to go home. Okay, fine. But why did you steal my household gods? 
And this is another weird part of the story. See, we see this in chapter 31, but as Jacob and Rachel and Leah and their whole family is in a hurry to leave from Laban, for some reason we read in chapter 31 that Rachel stole Laban's household gods. Have you guys seen the movie Home Alone, the classic, the first movie Home Alone? You guys remember that at the beginning of this movie, if you can remember this scene, it's right when it comes on. At the beginning of the movie, the whole family has overslept, and they're going to be late for the airport. And it's just amazing scene of just like all this chaos. You know, this whole family is like they're running around, they're in a hurry, and it's, everything is frantic. You guys remember that scene? Okay, imagine that. A bunch of people in a hurry to leave. They're running around frantic. That's basically what's happening here. Except, instead of forgetting Kevin, Rachel steals the household gods. Okay, that's the twist. That's how it's not like Home Alone. Other than that, it's just like Home Alone. Rachel, she snags the household gods, and she puts them in the camel saddle that she is sitting on. And nobody knows that she does this, the text says. Nobody knows. And so when Laban is accusing Jacob here of stealing the gods, Jacob, of course, denies it. And Jacob says, okay, you go ahead, Laban. You search everything we've got. We don't have your gods. And in fact, whoever you find the gods on, you can kill them. You can take their life. Jacob doesn't know that Rachel has done this. He doesn't know Rachel has stolen these gods, which means in Genesis This is like some intense, dramatic irony in this story. We, as the readers of this story, we know that Rachel has stolen these gods, but Jacob doesn't know, and Laban is looking for them. And so as the readers of this story, we are on the edge of our seats. We want to know, is is, is Laban going to find these gods? And he looks everywhere for these things. He looks in Leah's tent. He looks in Rachel's tent, and he cannot find these household gods. And then he comes to Rachel who is sitting on the camel, and she is sitting on the saddle on the camel where she hid the gods, and she tells Laban in verse 35 that she cannot get up from the saddle for him to search the saddle because the way of women is upon me. Which is, I don't, which me, some translations might say this. It's like, she, she, she basically tells Laban, like she's, like she's a, she's saying that she's like saying hey it's my time of the month I can't get up and uh some English translations just say that ESV smooths it out for us but and when she says that Laban's like okay okay I'm not gonna I'm not gonna this is a very weird story but it works When she says that, Laban gives up searching for the gods. He doesn't find the gods. And when he doesn't find the household gods, Jacob goes off the rails on Laban. This is in verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and berated 
Laban. Jacob just runs through the last 20 years of working for Laban, and he cites all the ways that Laban has mistreated him, and Jacob credits God as the one who has made all the difference. The Lord has been with Jacob. The only explanation for how Jacob has made it, the only explanation for why Jacob is blessed is because of God, not Laban, despite Laban. That's the third part. Now, the fourth part of the story, okay? Jacob makes a covenant with Laban. And actually, it's Laban who initiates the covenant in verse 43. Laban wants to make a peace treaty with Jacob, which is very telling. This is a very revealing part of the story. Although Laban has tried to flex his power on Jacob in verse 29, he knows that Jacob is a force to be reckoned with, because of Jacob's God. This, a, a big part of the showdown between Jacob and Laban was Jacob recounting all the ways that God had looked out for him despite Laban. And Laban gets the point. He understands. And so Laban concedes. And they make a covenant. And this covenant, it, it signals the final break between these two families. This covenant is not about a partnership. It's about both of these families now keeping to themselves. And we can see a contrast, just the divide between these two families here. They call the place of the covenant different names. They speak different languages. They worship different gods. And so they're done. They're done. The house of Israel, Jacob, he is done with Laban. And so Laban departs and Laban goes home. He finally leaves Jacob alone, just like God told him to do in the start. And that, that finishes chapter 31. That's the whole story. That's the story of Genesis 30, 25 through the end of 31. That's the story. Now, we've seen the story. I want us to learn some lessons about what's happening. We're in part two of the sermon here. And this story right here is teaching us something about God. There are truths about God that we learn here, and I want to just mention three. The first truth that we learn about God is that God is sovereign in a world full of Labans. Second, God keeps his promises in our details. And third, God sees every affliction. Three lessons. Here's the first. God is patient with a world full of Labans. And there's a truth here in this passage that we have to come to grips with. This is a truth. We see this truth in Genesis. We'll see it again. This is an important truth that we have to come to grips with in reality in the world. It's that we know God is in control and we know that God means good for Jacob. And yet at the same time, there is such a person as Laban. Laban is the quintessential worldly man. He's greedy and weasley. He's a pagan and a swindler. He has oppressed and mistreated Jacob, and he's gotten rich off of him. Laban only looks out for himself at Jacob's cost, and it all has happened. All of that mistreatment has happened on God's watch. God does not take him out. 
which we know God could have done. When, when Laban was pursuing Jacob after Jacob fled, God could have designed the whole thing so that they all come to a big sea. And God could have parted the sea for Jacob and his family to cross. And then when Laban and his army tried to, try, tried to cross, God could have just thrown the water, thrown the sea back on top of them. God could have done it that way, right? Because he, he does do it that way later. But he doesn't do it that way here. Instead, in this story, God doesn't destroy Laban as he's pursuing Jacob. Instead, he lets Laban make an agreement with Jacob. He lets Laban gain wealth off of Jacob. And maybe the strangest of all, God speaks directly to Laban twice. And this is, the, this is the part that's hard to wrap our heads around. In chapter 30, we don't see God speaking or communicating at all. God has not spoken to Jacob or Rachel or Leah or any of Jacob's 11 sons. But we read in verse 27 of chapter 30 that God has communicated with Laban through divination, which means sorcery. This is a strange story. Apparently, the pagan Laban was doing some type of like crystal ball thing, some type of like get rich quick stunt. And as he was doing this sorcery, a message was given to him. Yahweh sent a message to him. And that message was that Yahweh is the cause of Jacob's wealth. And Jacob is the cause of of Laban's wealth. So the message were clear to Laban. I've gained, Yahweh told Laban, you have benefited from my servant Jacob. Then in chapter 31, verse 24, God comes directly to Laban a second time in a dream this time, and he tells Jacob, he tells Laban, leave Jacob alone. And we should hear, we should hear this part because this, this is not just to protect Jacob. This was mercy to Laban because God did not do that for Pharaoh. You see? He is giving mercy to Laban here by saying, don't mess with Jacob. So why? What what is happening here? He didn't do it for Pharaoh. God does it here for Laban. Why does God do it this way? And the truth is, we don't know. I don't know exactly why God does it this way in this story, but it shows us the depths of God's common grace, God's common benevolence, common grace, his general goodness toward humanity. Jesus teaches us this truth in the Gospels. Jesus says that the Father makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust, which is just absolutely stunning. Like, we need to just marvel at the truth of God's common grace. Like, today, right now, in this moment, God is making his son, his sunshine. It's God's sunshine. God is making his son shine on people who despise him. 
There are people in this world, there are people in our cities who hate and blaspheme God. And they are alive right now because God gives them air and food. There are people in this city who have gained wealth by mistreating God's people. And they kick their feet up like all is well because God lets them. And we know it will not always be this way. Of course it will not always be this way. But it is right now. And that's because God is patient. He is so patient. Because he is so good. And the goodness of God here moves us. It should move us. The Apostle Peter grappled with this truth of God in 2 Peter chapter 3. He tells us there that God's patience toward humanity, God's patience toward humanity is not because God is slack, but it's because God is giving more time for the ungodly to repent. God is so patient and so good. God is so patient and so good. And anybody and everybody benefits from that. That is the bewildering goodness of God. Everybody, everybody in this world benefits from the goodness, the patience of God. God is patient with a world full of Laban's. Help us to be. Second thing we learn, God keeps his promises in our details. I think this is the main idea when we look at chapter 30 and 31 side by side. Chapter 31 is sort of like the theological commentary on Jacob's actions in chapter 30, okay? I want us to compare the chapters, but first, let's just start with the result, okay? What's, what's the, what, what happened here? At the end of the day, what we see in both chapters, in chapter 30 and in chapter 31, what we see is that Jacob is blessed. Chapter 30, verse 43, ends with a note about Jacob's prosperity. The man increased greatly. And then in chapter 31, the prosperity and blessings of Jacob are mentioned at least five different times. So that's what the two chapters have in common. Jacob is blessed. Now, what's different about the two chapters is the perspective that they offer us. In chapter 30, we see that Jacob is blessed, but in chapter 30, all we see as to why is Jacob's hustle. There is no mention of God's work. After Laban treats Jacob and takes away all the lambs and goats that were supposed to belong to Jacob, Jacob is less, he's left with absolutely nothing, and he seems completely unfazed by it. It does not, he's okay with it. He doesn't complain. Instead, instead of complaining, he has his own kind of breeding trick, which makes no sense to us, right? Anybody get what's going on here? <laughs> no one knows. It, it must have been some type of like a folksy shepherd hack back in the day. Verse 37 tells us what he does. Jacob takes some fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees. And you guys know in the text why almond and plane trees come last, right? It's 
because they're less popular. Um, so. so the less popular branches come last. Poplar, almond, and plane trees. And uh, what it, he, he peels the sticks. He takes these three trees, the poplar, the, the, the almond, and the train, and the, the plane. He peels the sticks back to expose the white bark of, of these sticks. And then he sets the sticks up in front of where the lambs and goats drink water because that's also where they breed. And he makes sure to have the sticks out when the stronger of the flock are breeding so that the feebler of the flock will belong to Laban. And in verse 43 says, after Jacob does all this, verse 43 says, thus the man increased greatly. And so if all we had was chapter 30, we say that, that Jacob's prosperity is because of his hustle. Jacob's prosperity is because of his own work. It's because he was a shrewd hustler. It's because he sets up the sticks. That's what it looks like in, verse, in chapter 30. But then we get to chapter 31. And then in chapter 31, when Jacob is talking about why he is so blessed by God, this is what he says. Verse 5, the God of my father has been with me. Verse 7, God did not permit Laban to harm me. Verse 9, God has taken away the livestock of Laban and given them to me. And then Jacob explains that the angel of God came to him in a dream and said, Lift your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. Verse 42, Jacob says to Laban, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham in the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely you would have sent me away empty handed. It is so clear in chapter 31 that Jacob is giving God the credit for his prosperity. It is because of God. God has kept the promises he made to Jacob back in chapter 30. Uh, back in chapter 28, God has been with Jacob. God has increased his house. God has blessed Jacob. That's 31. It's clear in chapter 31. And we should expect this. We read this. We should expect, yes, the promise of Abraham has been handed to Jacob. We get that this is all because of God. But we still got chapter 30. We still have to deal with chapter 30. At one level... The only reason, at one level, the chapter 30 level, the only reason Jacob was not sent away empty-handed is because of the stick thing he does in chapter 30. But in chapter 31, Jacob says the only reason he's not empty-handed is because of God. So which is it? Is Jacob's prosperity because of what he does in chapter 30? Or is it because of what he says in chapter 31? Are Jacob's blessings because of his own work? Or is it because of God's promises? And the answer is that the, the blessings on Jacob are because of God's promises in and through his work. And I mean, like, down into the details of his work. 
The text shows us details here. Jacob is taking certain kinds of sticks and he's peeling them back a certain kind of way and he's positioning them just right over by the water. And somehow at the same time that Jacob is messing with the details of these sticks in very particular ways, God is fulfilling his promises. The promises of God are at work for Jacob down in the details of him setting up these sticks. And this is important for us because a lot of times in life, it can feel like all we ever do is set up sticks. Last Saturday, I had a yard sale. I'm not sure if you've heard about this yard sale. I can't stop thinking about it because I wasted 10 hours of my life in my front yard. And I made $60. And immediately, I spent over half of that at Chipotle to feed my family. And then Monday morning, I had to pay Ramsey County $50 to dump the stuff that we didn't sell. All right? So just do the math. It did not work out for me. Won't happen again. And so Monday, I'm, I'm having to get rid of this stuff. I'm having to, to, to dump the things that, that we didn't sell, that the goodwill wouldn't take. These are, this is stuff that needs to be gone. And so the back of my truck was full, and I, I backed up to this big dumpster. And it's Monday morning. I take Monday mornings off. I'm uh, at, at the, the land, the uh, disposal place. And... I almost had everything out of the, the bed of my truck. I almost had everything out of the back of my truck. And I was just about ready to leave. And you don't want to spend too much time at these places. You're kind of holding your breath. You know, you want to get out of there. And, and, I, and as I was getting ready to go, one of the last things I had, it, it was a, an 18 by 24 glass frame. And it just shattered. And it like shattered into rice in the back of my truck. It, 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 was, it, was, it was like rice, except it, it was like jagged, sharp pieces of glass in the back of my truck. And when it happened, it was the sound. I, I knew right away. I'm looking, I knew right away. I got to get this up. Like, I can't, you know, the kids are going to get cut up with this stuff, and it's going to put a hole in my tire. Like, I, I got to get the glass out. And so, and you got to be gentle because it's sharp. And I had a, f- a few times I stuck in my fingers. But so I, I started just picking up these little pieces of, of, of glass, one at a time, a little piece of glass. And as I'm picking them up, I'm like carefully putting them in this big giant dumpster that has like couches and uh, cabinets. I'm a bunch of just junk. Those little pieces, I put them in there. And I got a couple minutes into doing this, and it just felt completely absurd. Like I, I would have much rather of been collecting shells or playing softball. And instead, I'm picking up glass. Like I'm wasting my life here picking up these little pieces of glass. I was dealing with the details of this glass, and I did not want to be there. And then I felt the love of God. It occurred to me that somehow 
even here in these tiny details, even in this moment of, of picking up this glass, all the promises of God to me are true and active and happening in real time. He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, true right now. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head, true right now. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand, true right now. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can can man do to me? True right now. Cast your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. True right now. As I'm picking up these little pieces of grass. The promises of God to us are promises that he keeps in our details, in your tiny details. God is at work in the tiniest things you do, whether that means picking up glass or setting up sticks. And so, brothers and sisters, take heart and keep on with the tiny things. Keep on with the tiny things. This is the third thing I want to say we learn in this passage. It's that God sees every affliction. This point is so important in the story that we actually read it twice in chapter 31. In verse 12, God tells Jacob in a dream, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. And then in verse 43, Jacob says it to Laban, God saw my affliction in the labor of my hands. God is a God who sees. And this is something we've already learned in the book of Genesis. It, it, we, we learned this way back in chapter 16 when Sarah mistreated Hagar. Remember in that story, Hagar was treated harshly by Sarah and Hagar was trying to flee and God came to Hagar and he told her that he had listened to her affliction. And Genesis 16, 13 says this, so Hagar called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. And what's especially fascinating about this instance in Genesis 16 is that Hagar is outside the covenant of promise. This is not Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. This is a servant girl who is left on her own. And the Bible tells us that God sees her. God looks after her just like he does for Jacob in Genesis 31, which means this. Whoever you are, God sees your affliction. God is the God who sees every hardship. 
God is the God who gives special attention to every kind of suffering. So whatever it is you're going through, whether it's some big external hardship at the hands of someone else, or whether it's a deep personal struggle on the inside, God sees you. I want you to know God sees you. He sees you. God sees your affliction. And even more than that, God is not just the God who sees your affliction, but he is the God who bears your affliction. This is the God who knows what it's like to be in your shoes because this is the God who came here and put on your humanity. When Jesus, the Son of God, became a man, he immersed himself in the human experience and somehow, in some way, wherever it is that you are, Jesus understands. Jesus knows where you're at, not just because he sees, but because he's been there. And he has taken that affliction upon himself. When Jesus died on the cross for you, he died to save you from every enemy against your soul. And when he died, he made a deal. Some of this deal we get now, some of this deal we get later, but it's the same deal. Jesus died to give you mercy for judgment, righteousness for sin, life for death, Wholeness for brokenness, honor for shame, beauty for ashes, laughter for tears, singing for sorrow, blessing for affliction. Jesus died for you to make that deal. Will you trade with him? Will you trade with him? Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. And to the one who is thirsty, take the water of life without price. You bring your nothing, and Jesus will give you everything. It's true. It's true. You bring your nothing. And Jesus will give you everything. That is the great exchange that is offered to us in the gospel. And that is the amazing grace that we remember each week as we come to this table. The pastors and the band can go ahead and prepare for communion. Each, each week as we take the bread and the cup, we remember at this table all the blessings that God has given us because of Jesus. See, we too have been blessed because of someone else, Jesus. And at this table, we remember that. We were guilty, but now we are forgiven. We were dirty, but now we are pure. We were outcasts, but now we are the sons and daughters of God. And when we eat the bread and when we drink the cup, we are saying amen to that. We are saying at this table, Jesus, thank you. Thank you. We're going to serve the bread first. Just hold the bread. I'll come back up. We'll eat it all together 
His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.